0: Settle in and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. It's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and this film is lit. Hello and welcome back to this film's lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. This episode we're discussing The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. We switched it up on this one. I read it because I've read it previously. Mm -hmm. I've read most of the books previously. This time in the prequel episode I said I was going to try to read the first two. I ended up not being able to and I also, after looking at it some more, the movie is basically based on the first book. So I just read the first book which is titled The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy um, so there may be throughout this, there'll be times where I'm like, this may happen later and I, for- I yeah. can't remember, or I think I do remember this happening later. Uh, elements like that. There are certain things that uh, if you've read all the books recently and have a good memory of them, you might be yelling at me. No, that's from a later book. If so, I apologize. We're talking about the <laughs> first book and and the and the movie based upon it. Mm-hmm. So uh, and as we talked about in the prequel episode, also Douglas Adams Every time he told this story, which he did write a lot of the screenplay for this movie, uh, he mixed things around. He changed things up. He it was uh, the, the Hitchhiker's Guide is a living document to some extent <laughs> uh, while he was alive. And even after, because one of the books that came out after that is part of this trilo- trilogy of six, <laughs> six, five novels in one story, uh, the increasingly inaccurately named uh, Hitchhiker's Guide trilogy, because it <laughs> kept getting more and more books. Uh, one of them wasn't even written by... Douglas Adams it was like inspired by a story written by Mm -hmm. Douglas Adams or something like that Anyway so there's lots of elements that move around between all the different versions of the story So if there's something I'm not know I don't know then uh, tell us about it and I'll correct it So before we get started if you have not read or seen the movie which you should have It's on Netflix easy to watch nice tight hour and 40 minutes long We're going to briefly summarize it there will be spoilers So let's get to let me sum up Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Katie, I go first. Yes. Because I have the book, which means you don't listen. It
1: means I hold my ears. You hold
0: your ears and you don't listen. Arthur Dent wakes up on a Thursday like any other, only to realize that his house is about to be destroyed to make way for a new bypass. He attempts to stop the bulldozers before being spirited away by his longtime friend, Ford Prefect. Ford is actually an alien who just discovered that Earth is about to be destroyed to make way for a hyperspatial express route. Arthur and Forge hit hike off the planet just in time as Earth is destroyed. They eventually make it onto the Heart of Gold spaceship, which is a special new spaceship stolen by president of the galaxy, Zaphod Beeblebrox, and Trillian, Trisha McMillian of Earth, or Trisha McMillan, I guess, of Earth. Zaphod then takes them to the fabled planet-building planet of Magrathea, where he thinks he'll find a bunch of money somewhere on the surface because they're a very rich planet, because building planets was a very lucrative business. Uh, they've since disappeared, and this is sort of an ancient, mythical planet. And he thinks still he'll find uh, endless treasure there. They don't find any money, but they do encounter Slardy who expl- well Arthur mainly encounters Slarty Bartfast, who explains that they're building a new Earth for the mice, uh, who had the first Earth built as a supercomputer to calculate the ultimate question that goes along with the ultimate answer provided by the computer Deep Thought, to life, the universe, and everything. Earth was mere minutes from producing the question when it was destroyed. So the mice uh, decide instead of getting in all the whole new planet and waiting all of the time for it to come up with the answer or the question again, that they will just take Arthur's brain. They think it will provide them with the question because he was part of Earth up until the moment where it was destroyed. As they're about to cut it out of him, alarm sound. Our heroes make their escape. Cops have shown up to arrest Zephod for stealing the heart of gold. Marvin ends up saving the day and our heroes decide to grab some lunch at the restaurant at the end of the universe. Katie, that was the book. Mm -hmm. What is the plot of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the film from 2005?
1: All right. Usually I write down my let me sum up. Um, Since I'm doing the movie this time, I decided to try to do it the way that you do it. I wrote mine down. And just like wing it. Yep. So this movie gets started and um, Arthur Dent, played by... uh, Bilbo Baggins. Martin Freeman. Yeah. Um, he is upset because his house is going to be torn down to make room for a highway?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah bypass, okay. but yeah, a
1: highway. Um, so he's laying in front of some construction equipment to try to stop them from demolishing his house, and then he is whisked away by his friend Ford Prefect, who says that the end of the world is imminent. Um, And then Arthur is upset because he met this girl whose name was Trisha, um, and she was dressed as Charles Darwin, and she wanted to go to Madagascar, but he wasn't spontaneous enough and she left with some other guy who was like flamboyant and kind mm-hmm. of looked like a rock star. Yep. Um and he's mad that he didn't do enough of a good job shooting his shot with this girl. Um and then Ford Prefect is like it doesn't even matter because the earth is going to be destroyed, so we have to go um because it turns out that Ford is an alien and he's on earth hitchhiking and writing uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So they hitchhike, he has like a little ring that spends, sends a beam up into the air, and they get on board this ship, but it turns out that they're not supposed to be on board the ship because it belongs to a race of... The Vogons. The Vogons, the fish people. They're, the they're ones kind that are, of like fishy.
0: They're the ones that are there to destroy the planet.
1: Yes, they're there to destroy the planet. Um, so they get on board this ship, but they're not supposed to be there, and they get caught. And the Vogons read poetry to them, which is terrible. Um, and you might
0: need to pick up the pace of this summary just I'm a bit. Okay, all right. <laughs> they get
1: away somehow, and they end up on board this other ship. And lo and behold, there is the rock star looking guy who turns out to be the president of the universe. And also the girl that Arthur was in love with or wanted to bang. Um, and then they... They do a bunch of stuff, and there is an answer to life in the universe, which is 42. Um, But they're looking for the question, so they have to find this question. Um, And there's some shenanigans that happen that I was a little fuzzy on. Um, And then they go to try to find the question... Um, but it turns out that Earth is like a fake planet that was built by these mice to try to find out what the question was. Um, but now Earth is destroyed. So the mice want to take Arthur's brain, but they don't because he smushes them with something. Yeah. Um, And then everything ends up fine yep
0: yeah. yeah the Vogons show up yeah and they all uh, and the,
1: the the sad robot Marvin saves, the, saves day, the day and then everything is fine and zoe de chanel and martin freeman get to be together and gallivant around the universe which is better than madagascar
0: yep that's pretty much it that's pretty much the movie roughly so that was your brief summary let's get into the game show portion and play guess who
1: are you no one of consequence i must know. get used to disappointment okay
0: all right i have five today first one she was slim darkish humanoid with long waves of black hair a full mouth an odd little knob of a nose and ridiculously brown eyes with her red headscarf knotted in that particular way and her long flowing silky brown dress she looked vaguely Arabic.
1: Okay, well, there is a lack of female characters in this in the book as movie. well. Um, so I'm going to say that that's Trillian or Trisha. Does it matter? Is this, no, does she I, have both names? It's, in yeah, the, okay.
0: yeah, it's, uh, it is Trillian. Okay. Um, she's actually like the only female character in the book. Oh. They added one in the movie.
1: Yeah, uh, there is like a side side, which we'll talk about. I don't side know character or, or, in the movie.
0: She's very. Um, underdeveloped in the film. But uh, yeah, Trillian. That was Trillian.
1: So vaguely Arabic with her head. She scarf. looked because
0: she had a scarf on and right. stuff like that. Um, OK. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is also this was written in 1980 something. So yeah. <laughs> 1986, Fair I think enough. we talked about it. So, you know, not a, it's it's uh, yeah, it has its moments where it's not, you know, the world's most uh, sensitive. <laughs> thing, but. Anyways, uh, next one. He was about 30 as well. Tall dark-haired, and never quite at ease with himself. The thing that used to worry him most was the fact that people always used to ask him what he was looking so worried about. He worked in local radio, which he always used to tell his friends was a lot more interesting than they probably thought. It was, too. Most of his friends worked in advertising. Shots fired at me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um... Okay, so initially I was thinking maybe Ford, because you said tall and dark hair, but then the worried thing made me think that's probably Arthur Dent.
0: That is, in fact, Arthur Dent. Uh, yes, Martin Freeman is not particularly tall. Not particularly. Apart from that, the dark hair. and Yeah, the, yeah. I, that's why I included this, the the <laughs> looking worried. Uh, I thought that helped to give it away a little more. And then he works in radio. I thought was interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. they don't say what he does in no, the movie. No, it doesn't come up in not the movie. Not important, I guess. No.
0: Next one. He was roughly humanoid in appearance, except for the extra head and third arm. His fair, tousled hair stuck out in random directions, his blue eyes glinted with something completely unidentifiable, and his chins were almost always unshaven.
1: Okay, so there <laughs> is one character who has another head. He's got two heads, um, and that is Zaphod, or is it Zaphod? Zaphod. Zaphod, Zaphod Beeblebrox. Yeah.
0: Correct. Three for three. I should have said beforehand, these are all incredibly easy because (laughs) they're pretty distinctive. And the ones that aren't super distinctive, like Trillian, she's the only woman. So. Uh, All right. Next one. He was not conspicuously tall. His features were striking, but not conspicuously handsome. His hair was wiry and gingerish and brushed backward from the temples. His skin seemed to be pulled backward from the nose. There was something very slightly odd about him, but it was difficult to say what it was. Perhaps it was that his eyes didn't seem to blink often enough, or perhaps it was that he smiled slightly too broadly and gave people the unnerving impression he was about to go for their neck.
1: Um, I don't remember the name of the guy who was building the planets.
0: Uh, that is Slarty fast
1: Slarty Bartfast, because Bart I feel like that could maybe be him, um, or it could be that guy who turned out to be like part robot. Uh,
0: uh, uh John Malkovich's guy, character, yeah. uh, Huma, is Huma. his name.
1: Um, although, okay, so you said he was gingery, and Ford Prefect is not gingery in the movie. Sure. But the description does kind of sound like he's trying to blend in as a human, maybe. So I'm gonna guess it's Ford.
0: That is correct. Nice. Now, he is not a ginger in the movie. Uh, he's played by Most deaf mm-hmm. or Yassem Bey, I think, as he goes by now. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, the thing that yeah that I think kind of gives it away is the um. He perhaps his eyes didn't blink, or perhaps it was that his eyes didn't seem to blink often enough. Or that he was smiling slightly too broadly and gave people the unnerving impression he was about to go for their neck. Yeah. Like I said, it, it does kind of feel like some like an alien trying to blend in amongst yeah. humans. And his but skin like, is pulled slightly not too. Not
1: quite getting it right. Yeah.
0: Which is, sums up Ford pretty well. <laughs> Finally, the last one. Uh, so you're four for four so far. Nice. He was tallish, elderly, and dressed in a single long gray robe. When he turned, his face was thin and distinguished. Careworn, but not unkind. The sort of face you would happily bank with.
1: Okay, that I'm gonna guess is Slarty Bartfast.
0: Slarty Bartfast.
1: Slarty Fast.
0: Yes, uh, played by Bill Nye. Yes. In the film, uh, yes, that is, and it pretty that one's pretty much spot on to what he looks yeah. like in the movie. Yeah. Tall, elderly, single, long gray robe. I think it might be more brownish in them, but yeah, close enough. He I mean, does have an, a thin, um, distinguished face. Mm-hmm. Bill Nye does. So yeah, pretty much spot on. All right, that was guess two five for five. Like they said, they're relatively easy there i had a couple more i could have added, but i just went with five Mm -hmm. so good job we're gonna move on to your questions about
1: was that in the book nicholas flamel is the only known maker of the philosopher's stone what honestly don't you two read i tried my best to like suss out things that i thought they might have added or changed Mm -hmm. um
0: and now keep in mind we don't know what Of things that are added or changed were done by Douglas Adams versus the other writer uh, who came on and wrote on the movie. So we'll, you know.
1: And it's possible, like we said, that there's stuff that happens or is featured in other books that we don't know
0: about. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. And some Uh, of those I do know about, but we'll talk talk about
1: it. (laughs) Are dolphins the second smartest creature on earth?
0: yes, they are uh in the book that a lot of, pretty much any time a narrator speaks it's something verbatim from okay. the novel pretty much uh pretty much we'll talk about it um so dolphins are the second smartest creature on earth. it goes mice first uh mm-hmm. they're not actually mice though they're pan dimensional super intelligent beings that manifest as mice in our universe okay <laughs> uh and then it goes dolphins, and then humans. Hmm. So that's that's kind of how the book and the movie describe it. Uh, although I don't know if the movie ever identifies the mice as the like they say the dolphin are the second most second mm-hmm. smartest creature, but I don't know if they ever go back and explain that it was the mice that are the smartest creature. I
1: don't think they did.
0: They do a little bit at times because they say that they were like Slarty Bartfast explains they were
1: mm-hmm. doing
0: experiments on humans and that sort of thing. But anyways, yeah. So that, that is exactly the same, and it is mice that are not mice. They're mm. pan-dimensional, super-intelligent beings. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, does Ford Prefect try to shake hands with a car because he thinks they're the dominant life form on Earth?
0: He doesn't try to shake hands with a car in the book, but this is where his name comes from, is this this confusion. That mm-hmm. he does, in fact, think that cars are the dominant life form on Earth when he's doing research. He's doing research when he's com- going to come to Earth. And I mm-hmm. think this is actually in a later book because I couldn't find it in this one, but I remembered this. It's mentioned in this, it's like alluded to in the first book, but I think the actual explanation of it is from a later, I can't remember. Anyways, um, but he's doing research, and he mistakes cars as the dominant life form, Uh, and so he chooses the name Ford Prefect to blend in, and Ford Prefect was a model of car in Britain at the time. Now, it kind of lands flat for American audiences, because you don't know that, that prefect was a like a, ford made a prefect and it's pretty much only sold in england or whatever okay. or, but it was a in the 80s it was a, it might have been in, in the us in the 80s too i don't know yeah. I, was, I was born in 88 so it's possible that it was but i i'm pretty sure it was mainly in english or UK model. Well, the name
1: prefect is a little bit of a tip yes, off there. Yes, very
0: British. Um so that's that that is that that's an that's kind of a reference to that in the movie. Okay. All right. That he that he does in fact think that they're the dominant life form. But by the time he's on Earth he knows they're not. He really by the time the mm-hmm. story happens he's well aware that that's not the case. Right. So.
1: Um does Arthur meet Trillian at a costume party and is she dressed as Charles Darwin?
0: We don't see the party in the book or we don't get much of a description of it. It's mentioned and they do mention specifically uh, Martin Arthur Dent mentions that he met her at a fancy dress, quote unquote, party. Mm -hmm. I took that to mean upon reading it like that they were wearing like a like a like a black black tie tie dinner type of of thing. Uh, and not as costumes, but huh. I maybe that's a British thing calling it like a costume party, a fancy dress party. Maybe that's like a like a colloquial.
1: And we have some British listeners. Yeah. we'd like to know. So
0: if that's a thing that fancy dress party means like costume party uh-huh. in England or maybe used to. I don't know. Because, um, yeah, I took it as like
1: yeah, black like tie. Black tie. That's how I would. Take and it. again,
0: we don't see it in this book. I think it does maybe get revisited in a later book. If I'm remembering. It's been like it's been. 10 years since i read like the Mm -hmm. first four of these books or whatever but uh it might come back up and they may there may be more details but in the first book we don't he just says i met her at a party
1: all right uh does ford have a little thumb ring that he uses for hitchhiking
0: no he does not uh and i want to talk about this a little bit more later but in the book it is described the electronic thumb which is described Mm -hmm. is and this is quoting here a short black or short squat black rod, smooth and matte, with a couple of flat switches and dials at one end. So, so
1: it's like a like a little yeah. remote kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, kind almost. of. Um,
0: and he does have a similar looking item in the movie that I think is supposed to be the subsensimatic or whatever, which is another mm-hmm. device he has that that's what he senses the Vogons coming with. Oh, um, and that's a separate device in the book. There, he has a couple different things, but the, that's the description of the electronic thumb. That you use to hitchhike and kind of okay. teleport to ships or whatever so a uh, little bit different in the movie and we'll talk i have that in the segment a lot of the some of these questions i have
1: mm-hmm.
0: feelings on that we'll get to in later <laughs> later, later i'm familiar segments. with that yeah
1: all right is the hitchhiker's guide like an electronic database or is it a regular book
0: it is an electronic database. Okay. Uh, it looks pretty much as described. The movie version of it looks, in terms of like when they're opening it and looking mm-hmm. at it, pretty much what I imagined when it's described in the book. It is an electronic device with a screen, uh, and the words "Don't Panic" printed on it. It looks similar to if you have the deluxe edition cover. That's kind of how it's described, okay. um, but that's like a screen or whatever. Um, if you have the Barnes and Noble collection (laughs) the megadodo publications oh no that's the that's the people who published the hitchhiker's guide never mind from the novel um but anyways the yeah they have an illustration of it kind of on the back and that is what i imagine and what the movie looks like um the reason is that it that it's uh police sign the reason it's electronic database and not a regular book is, is mentioned in the book and i'm quoting here in normal book form, an interstellar hitchhiker would require several inconveniently large buildings to carry it around. Hmm.
1: If right, it was printed. Because yeah.
0: <laughs> it has everything yeah. about everything. So.
1: I was wondering because I thought that might have been something that they did for the movie. Was right, because get, it's like, very
0: visual. Yeah,
1: a more of a visual format.
0: Now, it, the, the, they do change that it like sh- sh- plays a little like animated video mm-hmm. when it's okay. describing. All in right. the book, it, it comes across more as just digital text, like mm-hmm. he's just reading. It does read to you as well. It will say okay. Like the stuff, but it I, I didn't get the vibe that it plays you like a little animated video about whatever you're learning, which is what the movie does, mm-hmm. which I think makes sense for yeah. the, for the film. So
1: Okay, one of the Vogons keeps saying resistance is useless. Yes. When they're captured.
0: Yes. Yeah, this is a Vogon catchphrase, uh, and it actually predated the Borg by a few years. Which okay, the Borg, that's what I was wondering. The Borg in Star Trek uh, TNG say resistance is futile. Mm-hmm. Turns out, so Douglas Adams was a big Doctor Who fan. He actually wrote quite a few Doctor Who episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, was involved in it quite a bit. And in early episodes of Doctor Who, both the Cybermen and the Daleks have said resistance is useless before. Okay. So they think uh, the idea is that he probably kind of just inspired and right uh, as an homage and nod to that like i said he wore he wrote doctor who episodes he this whole book feels very doctor who They're on a ship Uh uh-huh that's there are a bunch of people and honestly i think i read that uh ford was essentially parts of the stories like ford is basically the doctor kind of
1: um to some extent and then
0: like this band of Mm -hmm. uh uh, his companions travel around Mm -hmm. the galaxy you know in this ship that can travel through space and time, kind of, sort of. essentially. Yeah. And yarn. It, yeah. And you have your humans with you. It's very much like a Doctor Who yeah. type of thing. I had a
1: similar thought about the movie too, because it looks kind of like a little bit, like the the way the costumes and yeah. the set pieces look. Yeah, it's like very it's much. a little higher budget, but it,
0: yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like I said, Douglas Adams worked on Doctor Who quite a bit. Uh-huh. He was a big fan, a big, a big part of it, you know, of, of sort of British pop culture. So it's, their elements shared between the both of them quite a bit, so.
1: Okay. Um, Does Trillian end up being on the spaceship that ultimately gets them off of the Vogon ship?
0: Yeah. Uh, It happens the same way in the book. She left the party with Zaphod, Mm -hmm. Bebelbrox, and has been traveling with him since then. Okay. Um, We get more in the movie, or in the book, um, we get a little bit more of a description. She's there when... She's been with him for a while, and she's there when he steals the heart of gold, which is the spaceship. Uh-huh. There's we actually see that chapter play out in the book where he like goes to like he's there for the unveiling of this new spaceship as president of the galaxy, mm-hmm. and he gives his speech, and we see it a little bit in the movie like it's like a news story, yeah. But, um, but we actually read it a whole chapter about it, and she's there in the crowd, and he steals the ship with her, and they take it and oh, go okay. off, and he needed the ship to get to Macrethia. Magrithio. Does he
1: say he's kidnapping himself?
0: Yeah, I think he does. I can't remember. I would have to look at that specifically. But um, he, he, but that's not the reason that they like come after him. They come after him because he stole <laughs> this right. spaceship. Like, okay. there's some jokes in the movie about like there, there he, cops are after him because he kidnapped himself or whatever. And mm-hmm. it's like that's not really what they're after mm-hmm. him because he stole this ship. That's that makes like more sense. Super fancy uh, spaceship. Yeah. So
1: okay. Is there a gloomy, big-headed robot?
0: Yes. Marvin is the manically depressed robot of the books, and his dialogue, pretty much all of it, is verbatim. Like, it's <laughs> all um, word for word. I mean, not all of it is this, there, but pretty much everything mm-hmm. he says is some version of lines from the book. Okay. So he's he's identical.
1: Cool. Uh, does Zaphoid Brox have a head underneath his head? He
0: does not. Uh... Zephod just has two heads next to each other
1: okay yeah because his head in the movie like comes up out yeah. of his neck
0: that's not how remotely how it's described in the book I have this I want to talk about this later because uh, I kind of have a split feelings on it okay um, I'm of two minds about it you could say oh no. Oh, you could say why would uh, you do that. <laughs> but uh, no, it, it is described in the book as him just having two heads next to each other that are always there. You know, it's not like one uh-huh. it reveals itself. He just has two heads okay. and a third arm, which the third arm he doesn't always have. He had that added. That's like an aftermarket addition, oh. which we see the oh third arm once in the yeah, movie. Like really briefly. He slaps Martin Freeman with it, I think. Um, but yeah, he just has a third arm huh. uh, that he had added on.
1: Um, Does the Probability Drive turn them into yarn dolls?
0: No, it does not. I want to talk about the specific thing later. Something
1: that I really liked.
0: I know. I really enjoyed that, too. Um, What it does do is all sorts of silly nonsense. I'm going to read because it's really confusing when you first read it. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to uh, read a little bit of what the Improbability Drive does or how it's described in the book. So that you can kind of compare it to what the movie does, because in the movie, it like the ship turns into like random objects, mm-hmm. and then like the yarn one is, uh, for instance, is probably the best one, um, where it, like the reality is all messed up. Um, here's what happens in the book, and now I get why they changed it for the movie, and we'll talk about it. Uh, this is right after they get launched into space, and then they get captured by the, or not captured, they get picked up by the Heart of Gold, Arthur mm-hmm. and Ford. Computer chattered to itself in alarm as it noticed an airlock open and close itself for no apparent reason. This was because reason was in fact out to lunch. A hole had just appeared in the galaxy. It was exactly a nothing, nothing, nothing of a second long, a nothing of an inch wide and quite a lot of millions of light years from end to end. As it closed up, lots of paper hats and party balloons fell out of it and drifted off through the universe. A team of seven three foot high market analysts fell out of it and died, partly of association and partly of surprise. "...239,000 239,000 lightly fried eggs fell out of it to materializing in a large wobbly heap on the famine-struck land of Pogril in the Panzel system. The whole Pogril tribe had died out of out from famine except for one last man who died of cholesterol poisoning some weeks later. The nothing of a second for which the whole existed reverberated backward and forward through time in a most improbable fashion. Five wild event maelstroms swirled in vicious storms of unreason and spewed up on uh, up a pavement. On the pavement lay Ford prefect and Arthur Dent gulping like half-spent fish. There you are, gasped Ford, scrabbling for a finger hold on the pavement as he raced through the third reach of the unknown. I told you I'd think of something. Oh, sure, said Arthur. Sure. Bright idea of mine, said Ford, to find a passing spaceship and get rescued by it. The real of a universe arched sickeningly away beneath them. Various pretend ones flitted silently by like mountain goats. Primal light exploded, splattering space-time as with goblets of jello. Time blossomed, matter shrank away. The highest prime number coalesced quietly in a corner and hid itself away forever. So it's, uh... (laughs) It's kind of just nonsense. Yeah. Uh, 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 when they use the impro- improbability drive, it just it, it breaks the universe uh, kind mm-hmm. of where they are in that makes within sense. the ship. Yeah. Uh, because it, it from what I understand, the, the engine uh, it makes the ship occupy all points in space in the, the universe slash galaxy uh, for a limited amount of time, which allows them to travel to different places. Um, it's explained a little bit more later and, it's, and even more so in later books They talk about it a bit more But every time they use it Complete nonsense happens mm-hmm. For wa- while it's there Which we see uh, several times Throughout mm-hmm. the course of the movie as well um, I was a little disappointed in the movie at first The first time when they just kind of turn into couches I was like Alright I mean it doesn't it, It's silly and fun But it doesn't quite yeah. get across The like world breaking nature Of the, the way this spaceship works um
1: no, I was just mildly confused yeah. <laughs> by that. Yeah.
0: But I think eventually with the whole yarn thing, uh and um and some of that what they do with it later, it mm-hmm. it, it it works a little more uh, yeah. and it's a little more interesting than just like them turning into couches in the spaceship. Yeah.
1: The yarn thing is cool. Yeah. I thought it, I get why they changed it. I think it would be a little hard to film. I agree. What you just read.
0: I I completely agree that it it's definitely one of those things that's budgetary, probably, mm-hmm. to some extent, of, like, we can't do that. We yeah. can't have the universe turn inside and outside on itself and have millions of fried <laughs> eggs and, like, and people materializing and falling. Into, also, because it's just hard. This movie is already kind of hard to follow if you haven't yeah. read the book. And the book's kind of hard to follow. Like, at times, like, when you start reading that without realizing what's happening, because this is the introduction, to some extent, of the improbability drive. So mm-hmm. you're like what am I even reading? Like, what am I... And it takes a minute. And the book, I think, does a good job of it kind of walking you through because as it's going on, they start hearing a voice that says, like, counting down, which the movie doesn't do, counting down the improbability. Like, it starts at, like, the odds of what are happening right now are, like, Uh eight trillion bajillion to one. And then it starts dropping and the computer's reading it out and things get more and more normal
1: as it
0: sort of stabilizes and normalizes. And that comes up a little bit in the movie, but it's uh it things are crazy bonkers, and then kind of revert back to normality and that's kind of how the drive works but anyways it's uh yeah, that's what happens in the in the book. They don't turn into yarn <laughs> dolls though oh okay. not that specifically at least
1: all right um the the sneeze religion religion of sneezing
0: no, this is entirely new uh in this story. Uh, Along with Humma, the The, guy who ran against Zaphod Beeblebrox. Now, they both may show up in later books that I I cannot remember if that's the case, but they are not a part of the first book at all.
1: Okay, so then my next question, which is, does the creepy half-robot guy cut off one of Beeblebrox's heads to hold his hostage? Yes. No, it's not in the book. And that
0: does not happen in any faca- uh, any capacity with any character. OK, like there's not some stand in for Hummer. Right? Like that that, that whole storyline is just absent, um, which is following up on your next thing here. Do they rescue Trillian from being eaten by filling out forms like at a DMV? No. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of the second act, the first act is almost identical to the book. The third act is similar without being identical the second act they add a lot of stuff uh-huh. that's completely new um them okay. going trillion never gets kidnapped or captured uh in the first book again this may be elements of this in later books but in the first book she never gets captured they never go to the vogon home planet uh they never go to the sneeze religion place uh-huh. uh and talk to humma they never uh the whole the storyline with them getting a gun for humma is not a thing they oh, just okay. the first time they use that drive after uh, they get on the ship, the first time they use the improbability drive, they end up on Magrathia. Oh, Magrathia. It works. And they just so like in the movie, they use it and they're like, oh, we're not here. Yeah. Darn they, it. And like then
1: bounce around a couple times. Yeah.
0: And they're well, I think just, yeah, once. But yeah, they and they go, oh, shoot, we're not here. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to go talk to Huma." though. None of that is in the book. They okay. just they use it and they end up at Magrathea. And then it plays out similarly, kind of.
1: Okay. So the point of view gun, then. Yes.
0: Not in the book.
1: Not in the book.
0: Again, not in this book. Maybe in later ones, but not in this okay. book. And uh, I don't know if it if it is in later books. I do not know if it affects women or not. Okay. We'll talk about that later,
1: though. Yeah, I want to talk about that. Um, do the mice try to take Arthur's brain?
0: Yes, they do. Uh, they think... Uh, so they had this second Earth built, Right? Uh, right,
1: right, right, right. But
0: they decide because the first one got destroyed. Uh, they decide that instead of waiting the ten million years or whatever it's going to take for this new Earth to produce the question, mm-hmm. they're thinking maybe they can shortcut that by just having Arthur's using Arthur's brain because he was on Earth up until like the moment. It was destroyed. Right. He was part of the computer, so to speak. They think maybe the answer or the question is somewhere in him that okay. they can just get it out. And they say the same thing in the book as in the movie, that they're not even worried if it's actually the real question. They just want a good enough question because they want to go on a media tour and make a bunch of money off of it, uh-huh. which is kind of alluded to. I don't know how much well it comes across in the movie, but that is part of it. And so he just starts giving them random answers. Um, in the movie, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the random answers he gives them is when they come up with in the book, which is how many paths does a man walk down, or how much, how many paths must a man walk down? That's the question, oh. and they're like, "Yeah, that'll work." And they come, they come up with that after Arthur escapes. They're talking to themselves, and they're like, "That's a pretty good a- or question. We'll just use that because it's vague and not too specific, and it sounds good." But then they're like, "Yeah," and then they voip off to their huh. their universe or whatever,
1: all right,
0: or their dimension,
1: all right. Do Arthur and Trillian have a love story?
0: Yes. No. Kind of. Uh, It's alluded to in the book. We get very little of it, at least in this first Mm -hmm. book. Um, I want to talk about this a lot more shortly. It's one of my big kind of uh, value or qualitative differences between the book Mm -hmm. and the movie. Um, that I think are, is really interesting, and I do want to talk about it. And a lot of times adding a quote-unquote love story can be sort of a, a cheap Hollywood thing, but yeah. I don't think it is in this case. I think it's really interesting. And again, it's not really added. That is, It's there in the book. Like It's, it's, it's just the first book is so short. It's 140 uh-huh. pages, and it's super plot-driven. We don't spend nearly as much time with any of the characters or their interactions, and, and again, I want to talk about that here shortly.
1: Okay. So. All right, my last question then in this segment is, does the robot save them by making all of the Vogons depressed?
0: Yes. Well, no, but yes. Marvin does, in fact, save the day by making something very depressed, but it's not Vogons. Okay. And we'll talk about it. And
1: he doesn't have a point of view gun, so that's no. not how that plays it's out. It
0: works differently, but it is similar okay. they kept the spirit of what happens there um marvin does save the day by being a depressing sad sack robot that is what <laughs> happens in the book it just plays out very differently all right. all right All right. that was it for was that in the book let's move on to lost an adaptation
1: just show me the way to get out of here and i'll be on my way Where Was I lost? yes yes and i want to get unlost as soon as possible I don't really anticipate an answer to this. I was just kind of curious. Does the book explain how the dolphins left earth?
0: Not in this book. Okay. That whole chapter about the dolphins that we see at the beginning of this movie is a chapter kind of in the middle slash end of this book mm-hmm. um, where, and it's again, very similar kind of uh, anytime the narrator talks, a lot of that's verbatim, um, but it is explained. And I found this on the Wikipedia for uh hitchhiker's guide. Um, the dolphin has the dolphin, and this is quoted. The dolphin has developed a rather peculiar ability, which exploits the plural nature of their galactic sector, not dissimilar to that evolved by the babelfish, which is this: in the picosecond before the inevitable calamity, dolphins instantly wink into existence in all of their possible probabilities in the whole sort of general mishmash, and the whole sort of general mishmash. The SWSGMM is a thing that comes up in later books, and mm-hmm. it's sort of like. It's hard to describe without getting into specifically the details in that book, but it's just like a term for like the universe and like okay. the the multi-dimensional universe so and everything. like everything, the whole sort of general right. mismatch. yeah, it's the wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff. <laughs> um, so they just kind of voip away. Okay, And, and uh, the humans noticed in the movie, there's actually, I think you can see there's a newspaper that yeah. says the dolphins yeah. are disappear or whatever. Um, but they don't fly away like they do in the movie. And, but that's part of the musical number sort of right. yeah, it, I
1: heightened didn't, reality I didn't thing. I think that was actually no. happening. I thought it was just the musical No, number. they have some
0: sort of evolutionary skill that uh, allows them to teleport through probabilities.
1: Ugh, why would they stay here?
0: Cause the uh, the fish, thanks for all the fish. We go gave them a lot of fish.
1: Yeah, but we also like give them plastic and shit.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: And like make them live in sea world anyway. Yeah.
0: But that is an answer at least. Yeah, yeah, it <laughs> is.
1: Okay. Trillion. Yeah. Trillion is human. So I was confused about like why she knows how to pilot the ship and like navigate the different things that are happening in the movie like what is her deal
0: okay uh so a couple things one she's super duper smart and i don't think the movie really addresses this yeah if they do it would be during that first party sequence and i just missed it
1: i don't think um, it did.
0: She, in the book it's mentioned that specifically that she has two advanced degrees she has one in mathematics and one in astrophysics
1: all right fair enough
0: um, probably from like Oxford or something. So, <laughs> yeah. like she's brilliant. Uh, also, and this is I guess kind of present in the movie. She's been with Zaphod for a little while. Like they've been traveling together for a while by the um, time we see, meet that them
1: wasn't clear to me, yeah, it, okay. I felt like it hadn't been that long. It's
0: not been super long, but it's been at least i I would say a few weeks, or okay. again, I'm probably maybe not necessarily enough time to be able to learn pirate ship. I, it's never explicitly said how long it's been, but, it's been a little while. It hasn't okay. been, like, a day or two. Um, they've kind of been traveling together. Um, and we assume she kind of has picked us, learned some of this stuff along the way. And three, again, she's just kind of casually a genius. She, genius. she picks up all this stuff really quickly. Uh, and mm-hmm. that's kind of the reason she left Earth, she explains. Uh, in the book, she, uh, she was bored. Um, and okay. she says uh what she, when she's explaining that she has two degrees she says what what is somebody with a, a mathematics degree and an astrophysics degree supposed to do and she i think she's talking to Arthur at this point at the party maybe and she says am i just supposed to uh am i supposed to go do something or am i supposed to just go and get in the Go go get in the bank line on Monday or something like that. basically implying uh-huh. that she's just like what am, I, I this world's too boring for me like I'm too smart <laughs> for this world essentially is kind of what it is and she just wants to do something which is what they express in the movie like she wants to go to Madagascar because um, she doesn't know that going to alien planets is a possibility right. until Zaphod shows up and then she jumps at that opportunity so
1: fair enough okay um so I got really confused. I don't have great answers for this. When they go through, they, they get to Magrathia and they go through a portal to get to Deep Thought. And I was confused by like the sequence of events, but I didn't really know what exactly to ask.
0: I This is confusing to me too. Um, and I don't think the movie, this is probably the movie's biggest flaw, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. So this doesn't happen in the book. When they get to Magrathia, they go down to the planet and they're looking for money. So first okay. things first, Zephod's not looking for the answer or, or the question. question.
1: He's just looking for He's just money. looking for
0: money because Magrathea is a planet that builds planets. Uh-huh. That's what they do, which we, we see at one point. Um and they're they're like it was like it's described in the movie that it's like this ancient famed like El Dorado. Like they were this mm-hmm. planet that that uh, that built other planets for people and it's disappeared thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, and nobody knows where it is and can't find it anymore. And Zaphod thinks if he finds it, uh, that he'll find a bunch of money there because they were the okay. super rich planet because they built planets for other people. Sure. And like, yeah. yeah. Um, so he thinks he's just going to find a bunch of money. That's that's why he's right, doing it. And sure sort enough. of the fame of finding the planet. <laughs> but. So when they go down to Magrathia, Magath- they're looking for the money. And at one point, uh, everybody, they go down into the planet and they mm-hmm. all get like gassed and taken prisoner by we don't see like, who. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Arthur, who stays on the surface with Marvin like he does in the movie, but they do that in the book. He does it to like keep guard. Basically, mm-hmm. Zephod just doesn't want him to come with him because Zephod doesn't like him. Um, and Arthur runs into Slardy Bartfast fast the same way kind of that he does in the movie. And in the book, this is the other thing. So, Deep Thought wasn't built by Magrathians in the book, at least, okay. it, which it seems like it was in the movie, which is yeah. confusing because it shouldn't be. So, the the people that built Deep Thought are the mice, the okay. inner, the pan-dimensional uh, sort of super intelligent species of people um, that built the Deep Thought were were them, not Magrathians. I'm not sure why M- Magrathea has a portal to the planet where deep thought is, or if it's supposed to be on Magrathia, cause it shouldn't be, um, they don't ever go visit deep thought. They just go. And then they eventually run into Slardy Bartfast. I, like I said, I think the movie kind of just slams this all together uh, mm-hmm. to hopefully make it less confusing. And I think ultimately makes it maybe more confusing. Yeah. Um, we get recordings of what happened with deep thought in the book. Basically, Arthur gets explained all of this by Slardy Bartfast. basically plays and videos kind uh-huh. of, kind of like what we see with, um, uh, Zaphod plays at the beginning mm-hmm. um, but they don't ever go and visit Deep Thought because they don't need to go get the gun there's no supposed gun where Deep Thought is like none of that all of that whole plot line with trying to get the gun from the planet or that sort of thing is not there they just show up again looking for money they don't find any uh, they learn all this information about Earth and then the mice try to take Arthur's brain and they run away in the book ends basically Oh, essentially okay. kind all of right. that's what happens um <laughs> So, none of that happens and I think it's a little confusing and I don't really have an answer for if they're going to a different part of Magrathea where Deep Thought is because again Deep Thought shouldn't probably be on Magrathea. It's like in another dimension mm-hmm. essentially or whatever. Um or potentially uh so yeah, I I don't know the answer to that. Um they they that's not what happens in the movie or in the book. <laughs> I do want to talk about it uh, a little bit more at, at some points, but uh, it's it's a little confusing. It was probably mm-hmm. the thing I found most confusing, and I thought that maybe most people would find most confusing about the movie, um, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about. It.
1: All right, so then the mice are little people, and they vanish after Arthur smushes them. Yeah. W- why?
0: Okay, so in the movie, the we kept seeing those two little kids talking to deep thought Mm -hmm. and they're like the priests of this civilization or whatever that are like the ones chosen which is kind of a thing in the book. Uh, It's very different in the book. We'll talk about it, but there is two people who are chosen to sort of commune with the computer and talk to the computer. Um, And I assume so that those are the mice. They become the mice and, uh, in our universe or whatever. And I assume okay. the reason or in our dimension, I assume the reason that they disappear after he smushes them is that they like VoIP back to their dimension because, again, they're like interdimensional, mm-hmm. super intelligent beings. Um, although in the movie, I also think it's weird because they're kind of implied to be Magrathians, which is not the case in the book. And so that makes it a little more confusing about where they're what they're doing, because Slarty Bartfast is a Magrathian.
1: Uh-huh. He's just
0: a dude, um, a humanoid kind of dude. Uh, they're, the mice people are just, they're mice. They don't turn into people in the book either. They just stay mice the whole time and just kind of okay. disappear. Whenever they're in our dimension, they just represent it as mice. But the, in their dimension, they are kind of more like humans, it seems like. um, And we'll talk about it. It's it's confusing. I'm trying to explain <laughs> these like weird differences. It's already kind of, it's the thing about the book is that it's already kind of hard to suss out all of the everything going on in the book because it is so sort of uh wibbly wobbly like Mm -hmm. a lot of science babble a lot of like well they're interdimensional uh mice that are represented in our universe as mice and in their own universe they're very similar to humans and it's like and but you don't ever get the details of like what planet they're from or like Mm -hmm. what you know what where exactly is deep thought it's not important so it's not really some of those little details aren't ever really yeah, given to us in the book because they're not really important, right? So,
1: but then when we get into the movie, it makes for it kind makes of it a confusing, little confusing. Like, yeah, yeah. Where are they? Where are they going? Yeah. Why are they going? Why are they there? going? Yeah.
0: It is a little strange. Um, and I think the movie does what it can with that. And if you can get past that, I
1: mm-hmm. think that's
0: how the movie shines. But we'll talk about it. So <laughs> that's it for Lost in Adaptation. Let's talk about what's better in the book. You like to read? Oh yes love to read what do you like to read everything alright I have a lot of things here Um, but actually less than I thought I have a lot in better in the movie in later segments which is was interesting I will get there it's it's something alright better in the book Uh, for one of the first things that I was disappointed that the movie didn't do is that in the book Ford talks the foreman the mustache guy Mm -hmm. into laying down in front of the bulldozer in place of Arthur one of the things that's mentioned in the movie is, or in the book is that Ford is slightly telepathic
1: oh. and he
0: basically like Jedi mind tricks <laughs> the foreman into laying down where Arthur was. And then they leave. He doesn't like give everybody beer. Uh-huh. He just like talks him into laying down. Uh, and the, the back and forth is pretty amusing and like, and, and, uh, the, the foreman sort of, uh, the description of him as he's laying down and like what's going through his head he's like it just sort of feels right now that he's laying down in the mud and like it covered in filth he's like this this feels right this feels like my job <laughs> like like you know that sort of thing because he's yeah. this bureaucrat he's this yeah and then you can sense um throughout the book uh douglas is uh animosity towards anybody sort of uh part of the bureaucracy or Mm -hmm. uh sort of any sort of governmental figure Mm -hmm. um to some extent uh yeah but i thought that's that's fun speaking of the foreman uh, there's a line in the in the book that i really enjoy is the foreman when uh arthur's there's this big back and forth between him and arthur and arthur's like well i didn't know about this and the foreman starts getting like well you should have known about it and (laughs) uh the foreman thinks to himself quote obviously somebody had been appallingly incompetent and he hoped it wasn't him <laughs> which i i sort of love that one of the biggest things that makes the book really good and i talk about it in my final verdict is the little lines mm-hmm. of uh sort of um how to describe it i have it here um I think the novel the, the the thing that a lot of the things that I missed from the movie that the novel has is the sort of like brilliant little asides and observations about life and about people
1: mm-hmm. and
0: about the nature of kind of things uh that are really succinct uh but like really you could just like yeah that's like a very clever uh sort of read on a situation on on a on on people on events um, that the movie has, and mm-hmm. we get a lot of that through the narrator and stuff. Uh, but I think the book has so many of them, you obviously couldn't put all of it into the movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's that I enjoy most about the book. And I have some more throughout here, but that's a lot of what these are, are like little lines and little moments in the book that, were, that are very clever and very biting um, that just they couldn't put all of it into the movie. So it's like... <laughs> I get why it's not all there. Like, you can't yeah. have every... You can't know, you know, this line about the the foreman sort of realizing somebody's been incompetent and hoping it wasn't him. It says a lot about, you know, the type of person who's sort of a middle management yeah. uh, type of person who's like, somebody fucked up. I hope it wasn't me. I don't... You know, like, I, there's there's a lot of truth to that st- sentence, and I love it, the book for it, but I get why it's not in the movie. Yeah. So. Uh, this is one I wish the, the narrator had said, because it's one. It's a famous line, is that when the Vogon ships show up, and this is a lot of the way Douglas Adams' prose works, is he describes things in a way that not many people would describe things, mm-hmm. generally speaking. And one of those is when the ships show up, he, he describes them uh, by saying that they hung in the sky in much the same way bricks don't. <laughs> <laughs> because of this giant, massive... Uh, rectangular ships that don't look like they should be able to fly, but they do. Uh, and another little line. This is a great line. This is I uh, <laughs> uh, I don't remember the exact context of this. Um, and I'm not going to do every line from the movie that are from the book that I liked that didn't make it into the movie. <laughs> um, he's talking to Arthur after they get on the Vogan ship and he says, don't move. He added as Arthur began to un- uncurl himself, you'd better be prepared for the jump into hyperspace. It's unpleasantly like being drunk. What's so unpleasant about being drunk? You ask a glass of water. (laughs) It's a little turn of phrase there. That's, you know, I just, little things like that are just, as you're reading it, you just kind of chuckle to yourself like eight times a page Mm -hmm. and just like how clever it all is. Uh, And obviously you just can't get all of that into the movie. So yeah, um, talked about the improbability drive and just how much nonsense it is. I love that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagined the Heart of Gold being much sleeker and cooler than it is, like the outside design of it. I yeah. imagined it looking like a sh- the ship from uh, uh, in one of the Star Wars uh, prequels, the silver um, like Princess Amidala's ship. Uh-huh. I imagined it looking more like that, uh, but it's kind of just a big round white ball in the movie, which it looks okay. Uh, I like elements of it, but... I just imagined it to be cooler because it's like this super sleek spaceship.
1: One of the ships from Lilo and Stitch.
0: Oh, yeah. So uh, I like Zephod has in the book that he just has two heads all the time. But I do Mm -hmm. get why they changed it in the movie. And I do actually like some elements of it more, uh, which we'll talk about. Um, But I I think they changed it because one of the main reasons is budgetary. Just. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to have to constantly animate a second head or do like a practical puppet head or something yeah. the whole time. And I think the explanation they came up with for why he has the second head in the movie is kind of interesting and clever change on it. Uh, but I like in the book that he's just an alien with two heads. Yeah. I just think it's cool. Like, in, Although the book doesn't do a lot with it, to be fair. You never really know which head of his is tall. It's not like they have distinct personalities like they do in the movie. Mm-hmm. Whenever Zaphod has a line, it just says Zaphod says it. It's not like...
1: So it doesn't really like It doesn't really do mean anything. anything. Okay. There's some
0: moments in the book where they talk about him uh, doing certain things with the head, but like it's not particularly interesting. I don't think the at least in the first book the book doesn't do a lot with the fact that he has two heads mm-hmm. all the time, so it's it's not super interesting. So in the book it's not the Vogons that chase down our heroes. They don't mm-hmm. chase the Heart of Gold. Uh in the movie or in the book it's um just like generic cops basically like the Mm -hmm. government is after them uh and i get why they made it the Vogons in the movie because they're established villains already at the beginning and they spent all that time doing all the character design and making all these puppets they might as well use them (laughs) like i get it and i i don't hate that they're like it's a little weird because they're like the main reason in the in the book is like they're they are like the demolition and construction crew, basically. Mm-hmm. They're also a big part of the bureaucracy. So it's I I can see both ways. But
1: Yeah. it doesn't not make sense. No, it doesn't either, not make
0: sense. Um, there's some uh, brilliant analysis of Zaphod as a president in the book that I think is really, uh, <laughs> really biting and interesting. And I mentioned it in the prequel. Um it, it felt very prescient, though, to some extent, and they play on this a lot in the movie. And one of the things that I thought was interesting is that he's doing like a George W. Bush yeah. because this is 2004. He's yeah. doing that like so like Texas accent. Um, oh, OK. Well, th- this is uh, when <laughs> when uh, Zayfod is elected president. Um, it was for the sake of this day that he had first decided to run for the presidency a decision that had sent shockwaves of astonishment through the imperial galaxy. Zephod Beeblebrox president, not the Zephod Beeblebrox, not the president. Many had seen it as clinching proof that the whole of known creation had finally gone bananas. Zephod grinned and gave the boat an extra kick of speed. This is after he steals or right before he steals the heart of gold. Zephod Beeblebrox, adventurer, ex-hippie, good timer, crook, quite possibly, manic self-publicist, terribly bad at personal relationships, often thought to be completely out to lunch. President? No one had gone bananas. Not in that way, at least. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Only six people in the entire galaxy understood the principle on which the galaxy was governed, and they knew that once Zephod Beeblebrox had announced his intention to run as president, it was more or less a fait accompli. He was ideal presidency fodder. (laughs) (laughs) So, again, a little uh, prescient at times, but pretty great stuff. And I also like Trillian musing on Zaphod and why he's uh, so successful. Mm -hmm. Trillian suspected that the main reason he had such a wild and successful life was that he never really understood the significance of anything he did. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure we needed Humma. He's not in the book at all, which is John Malkovich's character. Uh, The first book is a bit short, so I can see that maybe they needed this extra pit stop and extra like sort of plot elements to kind of round things out. I still don't know if he's necessary. He just kind of...
1: He's kind of, he's there and then he's not an element anymore. Yeah, he doesn't
0: show up the rest of the movie. Uh, the gun is only important because it's how they figure out how to write. It almost felt like the, he only is there to have them get this gun so that they can figure out a way to do the ending that's different than the way the book does it because mm-hmm. the way the book does it doesn't make sense with the Vogons chasing them, mm-hmm. um, which we'll talk about. But I like this as a little element in the book that's fun is that when they and this happens in the movie, but it doesn't happen. The detail doesn't happen. when they're uh, getting shot at by the missiles on mm-hmm. McGrathia, uh, the ship's trying to avoid the missiles, and it can't, so it, they ask for manual controls. And the ship is so brand new that when the control panels pop open, uh, like, packing peanuts and, like, the plastic is still on it and, yeah. like, flies everywhere. And I thought that would have been fun to see in the movie. <laughs> it's, like, sort of, like, all the packaging, like, flying everywhere is they because none of it's ever been used before because the ship is brand new also computer eddie sings during that mus- missile sequence which is the computer's name is eddie uh, played the by thomas lennon ship? yeah on okay. the heart of gold the okay. computer who talks and is like okay. oh like super cheerful the yeah. whole time um, he's played by thomas lennon in the movie i think he does a great job uh, but he uh, <laughs> uh, in the in the sequence where they uh, are getting uh, are f- trying not to get blown up by nuclear missiles that mm-hmm. got launched from magrathia eddie starts singing Like, just because he's this weird, cheerful, like, computer that's, like, obnoxious and everybody hates him and how cheerful he is. But he starts singing a song. And I like there's something I was really hoping that was going to be in the movie. This moment of them fearful, like, all afraid they're going to die. And like this robot singing like a show tune over the top of it, I thought would be (laughs) really interesting. But they don't end up having that. in it might have been a little bit too much uh, noise because there's already a lot going on in that scene. Yeah. And I had this in Better in the Book, but it comes back, is that the there's a wormhole appears, and Arthur's words cause a war.
1: But it's in the credits. But it's in the
0: credits, and we'll talk about it. I had that in Better in the Book, though, because I was worried that we weren't going to get that, and I thought that's a, a very fun little moment. Uh, and the last thing I have for Better in the Book um, is there's a very biting cop critique uh, in the book that the movie completely left out, like real real good uh, again this is like 1986 which again not that the world was entirely different but like it a has little a
1: little different a little different <laughs>
0: and uh this is the cops show up and these are this is the end of the film after this is kind of the vogons come in place mm-hmm. of these guys kind of at the end here these are just a couple random cops they don't say what species they are or anything well they do eventually but it's not it's a species we don't know anything about so the cops show up we don't want to shoot you Beeble rocks shouted the figure. Uh, They hide, and then suddenly the air explodes with energy bolts as the cops both open fire on them simultaneously. Hey, they're shooting at us, said Arthur, crouching in a tight ball. I thought they said they didn't want to do that. Yeah, I thought they said that, agreed Ford. Uh, Zaphod sticks his head up for a dangerous moment. Hey, I thought you said you didn't want to shoot us. And then he ducked again. They waited. After a moment, a voice replied, It isn't easy being a cop. What did he say, whispered Ford in astonishment. He said it isn't easy being a cop. Well surely that's his problem, isn't it? <laughs> I'd have thought so. Ford shouted out, Hey listen, I think we've got enough problems of our own having you shoot of our own having you shooting at us. So if you could avoid laying your problems on us as well, I think we'd all find it easier to cope. Another pause and then the bullhorn again. Now see here, guys, said the voice, you're not dealing with any dumb, two-bit, trigger-pumping morons with low hairlines, little piggy eyes, and no conversation. We're a couple of intelligent, caring guys that you'd probably quite like if you met us socially. I don't go around gratuitously shooting people and then bragging about it afterwards in seedy Space Ranger bars like some cops I could mention. I go around shooting people gratuitously and then I agonize about it afterwards for hours to my girlfriend." I write novels, chimed in the other cop, though I haven't had any of them published yet, so I better warn you, I'm in a mean mood.
1: (laughs) Wow.
0: Right? That is like some pretty (laughs) intense, oh, it's, it's wild, um. Now listen to this, people rocks, and you better listen good. Why, shouted back Zaphod, because, shouted the cop, it's going to be very intelligent and quite interesting and humane. Now either you all give yourselves up now and let us beat you up a bit, though not very much, of course, because we are firmly opposed to needless violence, or we blow up this entire planet and possibly one or two others we noticed on our way here. <laughs> Uh, but that's crazy you wouldn't do that oh yes we would shouted the cop wouldn't we he asked the other one. "Oh yes we'd have to no question the other one called back but why demanded Trillian because there are some things you have to do even if you're an enlightened liberal cop who knows all about sensitivity and everything <laughs> uh, I just don't believe these guys muttered Ford shaking his head one cop shouted to the other shall we shoot them again for a bit yeah why not <laughs> and they started <laughs> shooting at them again <laughs> I like Ooh, scathing it's pretty and yeah it was like I know I get why that's not in a movie that's a line too far for most uh that's a, an indictment you know yeah. sort of a critique too far for for most of your general audience but I I thought it was quite um interesting and uh funny for lack yeah. of a better word but anyway so I was disappointed that wasn't in the movie but I get why it wasn't in the movie <laughs> All right, that was it for better in the book. Let's go on to better in the movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. All right, I love the opening song. It was so long and thanks for all the fish. It's fun. That chapter comes towards the end of the book. uh, Mm. And I love that it introduces us and it says that they're the second most intelligent species, which is a bit of like a breadcrumb to like, well, then what's the most intelligent? Because humans are the third. Okay. Because we're not sure who they're talking about because they they make it clear that humans are third, dolphins are second. So what's first? And then we find out later it's the mice. Um so I like that because again that comes way later in the book. Uh oh and there's no song. I and mean, it's just basically the descript- like the words, like everything the narrator says is the same but there's no mm-hmm. obviously no music or anything. Um <laughs> as it's a book. I like introducing Arthur and Trillian meeting at the party early in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also like that Arthur talks about it uh, early on. He mentions it in the book like once, but it's kind of just a throwaway line that he he met this girl. Um, but in the movie, they they build it up a lot more. And I like actually seeing it mm-hmm. and kind of seeing the beginning of their relationship. And this whole thing is built up. This love story is built up a lot more in the movie. I think there's a storyline that plays out more in later books. I think they touch on this more. Yeah. Um, in the first book, it's very unrequited. Like she just goes away with Zafod, and Arthur kind of, you can tell he has a crush on her over the course of the book, but they don't ever talk about it. They don't ever Mm -hmm. do anything with it. It's never brought up. It's just sort of mentioned. Like you can just tell kind of how they interact Mm -hmm. that Arthur's like, Stuart, you know, like uh, likes her and wishes she wasn't with Zaphod, basically. But I really like I really like where they go with that. And I'll talk about it in, a lot more in my final verdict. Uh, the ring on the thumb to hitchhike, which you mentioned earlier. I like that a lot. I think it makes sense. Yeah. I think it's a fun way to do it. That's not just because in the book, it's just like a black rod, which, OK, like, sure. <laughs> but I, the thumb thing's clever and I think it works. Um, I love the dramatic pullback reveal of the giant spaceships uh, right before Earth explodes when it starts down on Arthur and Ford and it goes and it goes up like a million miles (laughs) into the sky. I thought it it made me laugh and I forgot about that in the movie Um, and I thought that was really cool. And I just love the way and then everything goes silent and then the Earth just like disappears. I love the way the guide looks uh, when they show it like full screen, like the way the menu navigates and like the Mm -hmm. way the art plays out. I thought it's all really cool looking. Arthur serves a similar purpose in the movie that he does in the book, but he's a bit more real in the movie. He he has mm-hmm. a bit more to do, and he responds to things a little bit more like a real human being would. Like, in the book, he's a little bit on the nose like this, like, a fish out of sea. He just uh-huh. never, ever adapts. At least in the first book, he never gets around to sort of coming to terms with what's going on Mm -hmm. in any way whatsoever he's just there and zafod makes a joke about it at one point he's like arthur's here to say things like what and what's going on and i don't understand (laughs) Uh, and and arthur goes what and he goes exactly um but i think uh, he's a much more sympathetic character in the movie than he is in the book Mm -hmm. uh part of that might be just be martin freeman but um I really liked the slight changes they made to his character in the movie. I think he just feels more real and is a better, more identifiable protagonist than he is in the book. Uh, I like the bottom head. So we talked earlier about how I like I like just the two headed Zephod. But I do like the way the movie does it. And I get why they did it for budgetary reasons of not having to animate a second head all the time. And I like it popping up for emphasis and to say the uh, the obnoxious things that mm-hmm. uh, Zephod's more... Um, diplomatic head doesn't Uh say because and he talks about this to ford at one point he says i had the second head installed or whatever because i had to split my brain because when i was running uh for uh president i couldn't say everything i wanted to and so i had to figure out a way to split it basically (laughs) kind of like you know take all the awful things he would normally say and like the brash sort of part of him Mm -hmm. and push it down uh, which, again, I think the only thing I don't like about that is it kind of undercuts some of the satire, of, at, at least currently in our current political climate. I think <laughs> the fact that Zayfod got elected as the brash, incompetent asshole that he is, is a better satire than him being this two headed political like yeah. what he says on top. Yeah. Isn't what he says underneath type I mean, of thing. Yeah. That's interesting, but it's it's also it, it and and it is a good uh, political satire in two thousand four, maybe more so than it is currently. Potentially,
1: yeah. no, I agree. You know
0: what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I did. Th- I thought that was a clever fix for it. Is to say like, oh, I split my personality up so that way I don't, you know, I could get elected and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, I like the lightsaber bread toaster. That's not in the I've
1: book. Seen. A gif of that and i didn't know that this is yeah. what it's from
0: uh she has like a little lightsaber trillion has a little lightsaber bread toaster that's not in the book or not in the first book and I, it's fun it's whatever <laughs> it's fine <laughs> um i kind of like deep thought as a giant temple and the species that are the, in the the species that built it and sort of go to it um and, and are talking to it, uh deep thought as like this sort of Ceremonial type of thing In the Mm -hmm. book It's just in a building On a desk And it's just like A normal computer And the people who go To talk to it Are like accountants These two They're like these two Accountants I I get what the book Is going for with that uh, Yeah But I also like Visually I think that What Deep Thought Ends up being in the movie Is fun and interesting And I like The way they They kind of visually Display it I think it would be A little less interesting The way the book Describes it So uh, I like Zephod trying to get to figure out what the question is for the fame and the money. In the book, he just wants to go to Magrathea because he thinks there'll be money there, like I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I, so I like that he... Because he says in the movie, like, he wants he wants not only the money, but also, like, it's his, it gives him a purpose of, like, he wants to be the one who figures out this question. Because not so much because he cares about the question, but because he'll be the person who figured right. out the question it's for the fame it's for the money but it's also ties in that storyline to him a little bit more as opposed to it's it, it just being the secondary thing of like well also the uh, this these species built these computers to figure out the like our our characters are now tied into the whole deep thought and
1: yeah that makes a lot of sense i,
0: I think it makes a lot of sense too and it also adds a little extra level of like cool um mythos of like, oh, everybody's been trying to find this question and Zafod mm-hmm. thinks he can finally be the one to find the question as opposed to he thinks he's gonna get to this planet and find a bunch of money, which he still think I like that they don't change his motivation too much. He's yeah. still in it for the fame and the money. <laughs> it's just slightly nudged over to not just finding a bunch of money. He just wants he wants to find the question so he can get the fame and the money. I like the yarn after yeah. the Improbability probability Drive, that's great. I We talked about that. It's super clever and fun, and uh, it's all practically done. It looks like it's like practical stop motion, mm-hmm. like a yarn animation. Yeah, like I, little puppets. When that happened, I was like, this is delightful. I love this. Very good. They could have done more of that. I think they could have done a couple more of different versions mm-hmm. of that that would have been really cool. They don't really, but still, it's cool. I like that we get to visit Vogsphere, which is the Vogon planet, to rescue Trisha. None of that's in the book, the first book at least. Um, So we don't get to see what Vogsphere looks like. They do have the little, uh, we'll talk about, actually it's in the movie Nailed It here in a second, so I'll talk about that. But I like that we go there and see kind of Mm -hmm. what their planet's like.
1: Like It's like just bureaucracy. Yeah,
0: and the little slapping things whenever you think too much or have an idea. I like that. I thought that was clever. I also like the thinking helmet where they juice lemon and then said it's stupid, but I it's kind <laughs> of funny. And you get to see uh, Sam Rockwell be weird, which I, he does a great job in this yeah. movie. I, actually, everybody, I think, honestly, the weakest link in this movie acting wise was probably Zoe Deschanel. There's some moments where I felt like I wasn't buying her. Other times mm-hmm. she was great. The scene at the end with the gun I thought was really good. And we'll talk about it. But uh, it's other elements of her performance, I was like, all mm, right. I like Zaphod being the one who orders the Earth's destruction. This may be a revelation in later books that they figure mm-hmm. this out. I seems likely, but in the first book, they don't ever figure out that it was Zaphod who was the one who, like, rubber-stamped... Not that he orders yeah. it, but he just rubber-stamps it without yeah, it even thinking about it. Yeah, just signs
1: it without reading it yeah. or whatever, Yeah, which I makes it. sense.
0: Yeah, and like I said, I think that probably comes up in later books and they figure that out, but... I also think Trillian in this one just gets a lot more uh, emotional range and a lot more things to do in the Mm -hmm. book. She's just kind of along for the ride or in the movie. She's just kind of along for the ride in the book for the most part. I mean, she does stuff and she's smart, but like she doesn't really have a lot of um, she doesn't do a lot in terms of like her doing something. And I Mm -hmm. like the, the scene at the end or the moment at the end where she gets tired of all these men bickering about what to do. And it's just like, fuck this and goes into the portal. I really enjoyed that moment. Yeah. Uh, I also really love Arthur's reaction uh, and this is down to Martin Freeman, um, but when he gets into the planet building room, like mm-hmm. his awe and the face he makes, like with his hand over his mouth is just it, I feel like it so perfectly captures sort of the emotion of seeing something that just
1: yeah, insane.
0: Like yeah. I feel like he just in that moment, just Martin Freeman just nails that reaction um, because it's not just like, wow it's like He's like smiling and like it's it's that it's that thing of like when it's how I imagine like probably my face looked when watching like the uh, eclipse last summer, Mm -hmm. like where you're just like, this is amazing. And I'm happy, like I'm happy I got to experience this thing like that's kind of like what is on his face. And I just think it's really he does a really great job with it. I also love that it's a little cart on an arm that goes all over the place. That's really cool in the book. They're just like in a hovercraft basically Uh flying around which are like a little spaceship type thing. I love the, the the way the arms grab the cart and push it all over the place. I think it's really cool. Uh, also, so the point of view gun is interesting. I don't love the whole addition of that storyline with Hama and all, It doesn't seem super important or uh, interesting, but mm-hmm. I do like the gun. If for no other reason uh, than the one scene where she sh- where where the moment where Trillion gets it and she's shooting Zaphod with it, and he's like regurgitating all of her insecurities yeah. out loud to her. I think it's a really good scene. And the way it affects, I think she crushes it in that scene. I was just like, okay, like I don't love everything about this storyline, but I think that's a really clever way to have in a sci fi to have an emotional sort of realization for a character mm-hmm. is to have somebody else. Especially with, since it's Zaphod and he doesn't even understand what he's saying because he's, he's not that emotionally deep to, like, understand anything. Like, her, her shooting him and then the way, just every time she does it on her face and he says something else that she doesn't want to admit to herself about herself is, like, really intense and good. And I just love this scene. Um, but I also thought it was funny that it doesn't work on women because they're already empathetic and they can already see things from other people's <laughs> point of views uh, Unlike men. Which, you know, I don't know if that's necessarily true, but. I feel pretty empathetic.
1: But. It's a lot to unpack.
0: And a lot to unpack, yeah. I also like that Arthur goes home, that Slarty Bartfast takes him to his home, and that's kind of where it plays out. That's not where it plays out in the book. They just go to like a room in the oh. factory and they have a feast there. Mm-hmm. They don't go to Arthur's house. I thought that was. I also like it because it gives Arthur whew, the ending of this movie, as much as I'm sure it's controversial with how much they change for a lot of people who really liked the book. I love that they give him the, the, uh, they send him home and say, because his whole arc, the whole movie is, is, is he doesn't take chances and he just, he goes through the same sort of routine of his life and he Mm -hmm. just lives his normal, boring life and he doesn't want to take any chances. And the movie takes him back home and gives him the opportunity Yeah, to stay there and be in his home. And he over the course of this movie and everything he's seen and the people he's talked to decides against it. I think is really smart. And that's kind of what the book does, but it's just not as strong in the book. Um, I also like that Arthur gives them an answer uh, when when the mice start interrogating him about the question. And he has he gets put on the spot and he has this sort of he just bears everything he's been thinking to them mm-hmm. about trillion and about his life. And I, he does not do that in the book. They basically say they want to take his brain and he's like, Oh no, I don't want you to take my brain. And then an alarm goes off because the cops are there mm-hmm. and everybody runs and they just get away. Oh. Um, and he doesn't have to go through this moment where he's sitting there thinking he's about to die. And, uh, trying to come up with what is the question of life and kind of coming up with it and force it, it puts a lot of emotional growth onto him. And I love it as a, again, similar to uh trillion sort of moment of emotional under like yeah realization. It's, an, it's another good way for a sci-fi to do that. I think with a character where Arthur is sitting there with his brain, str- it's silly and it's ridiculous. Just like trillions where he's sitting there in a chair with his With a a metal thing on his head and mice are trying to cut his brain out of his skull. Um, And he has this emotional breakthrough. I think it's just. And again, Martin Freeman's great. I think he does a great job with it. And I I really like that scene. So we talked about it earlier. Marvin's suppression saves the day. Mm -hmm. Uh, The tweak to how they do it is pretty good because what happens in the book is that the cops that show up are uh some species that can't breathe the air on the planet they're on so they're in like they're in like suits uh-huh. they're in like um like basically like uh space suits uh-huh. and they just die our guys think our our guys are pinned down being shot at our heroes are pinned yeah. down being shot at by the cops and then all of a sudden it just stops and they're like what happened why did they stop and they walk out and the cops are dead and they realize they suffocated they asphyxiated and they're like what and they look at the space and they're like These spacesuits spacesuits are like have a backup thing. There's like no way they should have like there's only way this could have happened is if their spaceship they came on like completely uh, 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 shut down or stopped Uh working or something. And they're like, what what happened? And so they get to the surface and they're standing there and Marvin is there Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and he's and and the, the, the cop spaceship had landed right next to their spaceship. And Marvin had been talking to the cop's spaceship no. and it committed suicide.
1: Oh no. <laughs> That's so dark. It is, but I love it. It's so
0: great. It's so great. But, so I like that they kept the spirit of that, that it is yeah. Marvin's sort of uh, manically depressed personality that saves the day. Um, Cause I, I, you, we could discuss the elements of that potentially problematic in terms of like depression as a, mm-hmm. The thing that saves the day but like for the quirky funness of it uh the movie keeps that moment where it is his because he uses the gun to sort of transfer his emotional despair to everybody um and that's essentially what happens in the book it's just he gets he talks a spaceship into killing itself he doesn't talk he's not trying to he's just talking to it and because he's talking to it the spaceship kills itself uh and thus killing the cops and thus marvin saves the day but Last couple things. I like the movie's ending more. We discussed this. Yeah, I think it gives more closure. It's a more satisfying arc for Arthur for Trillian. They don't really have character arcs in the first book. Now again, and I'll talk about this a lot here very shortly in the final verdict. But comparing apples to apples, book one or the Hitchhiker's Guide the book to the Hitchhiker's Guide the movie, they the character arcs are a lot stronger in the book or in the movie, and Mm -hmm. they uh, they have closure. Um, and it just it feels better. I think it has yeah. more of an emotional punch than the than the book well, does. You
1: said the book was pretty plot driven, right? It's
0: very plot driven, and it's very clearly a we're gonna do more in the next one, whereas this one doesn't mm-hmm. isn't thinking about the next one potentially. And then the final thing in the sh- uh, in the movie I thought was fun is that when the ship jets off and it transforms into like eight different things the last thing it transforms into is douglas adams's face yeah that's what that is and then it says for douglas at the end so i thought that was a nice little touch all right movie nailed it
1: as i expected practically perfect in every way
0: a handful of things the movie i think does a really good job of capturing a lot of the little elements of this movie that are of the book that i really love and i think it anybody who likes this book a lot and doesn't like this movie I'm I'd be kind of astounded it, I don't want to get into the whole phil uh, sort of uh, journey I've gone over the course of doing this podcast and learning to accept the changes we've discussed it a little mm-hmm. bit but I think if you go into this movie having read the books and loved the books understanding that the changes are going to be made I think every change I think this movie captures everything that the book is about pretty much perfectly while adding and changing things in a way that just makes sense. Um, but the things that it nailed that are in the book, uh, I looked for this cause it's a stupid little detail, but in the book it's described that uh, Arthur's house has four windows on the front that perfectly fail to please the eye. <laughs> and Arthur's house in the movie has four windows on the front that are kind of like awkwardly placed. So I was like, well, yeah. well done. You did it. Uh, Martin Freeman is Arthur Dent. I've talked about it, but he's great. Uh, he plays a really great put upon Sort of every yeah, that's man. that's like his thing. That's kind of his wheelhouse is to put upon every man. And he's, yeah, he, he nails it in this one. Uh, the, his little lines, time is an illusion. Lunchtime doubly so. Something mm. Ford says that's from the book uh, in the same place. Same as uh, never could get the hang of Thursdays, which is a fun little line. I think most deaf is a great Ford. Uh, he plays such a great like well meaning but oblivious alien yeah <laughs> like he just does a great job of it I think he's kind of the perfect for prefect casting uh, I love the explanation of the guide and all the different little elements of when they're explaining what the guide is because that's pretty much a lot of that's verbatim from the mm-hmm. book uh like the the it's the most popular book series uh surpassing the 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 three part book series about God mm-hmm. and the, the last one uh uh, who is this God person, anyways? Some great moments. They include this line, and this line's not actually in this book. Uh, and it's the one I used in the intro. In the beginning, the universe was created. This is widely seen as a terrible decision, or whatever. Whatever the intro quote I said was. Um, in the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry, and has been widely regarded as a bad move. Uh, <laughs> that's actually not in the first book. That's mm-hmm. in the. That's the very first line of the second book. Where they're like, he does like a sum up. He's like, it's called The Story So Far or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that's like the the uh, the first line and then it goes into that part. Um, but I was glad that they worked to that end of this movie because it's a kind that's of an a, iconic it's line. line. It's yeah. an iconic line of Douglas Adams. Uh, the Babblefish mm-hmm. looks kind of exactly how you imagine. I would imagine it reading the book and it, you know, goes into your ear. And so in Doctor mm-hmm. Who, the TARDIS translates everything for you in...
1: Uh, in this universe, in this has, universe, you have to shove works. a giant
0: or a little yellow fish into your brain, <laughs> which I think is fun. I think the movie does a really great job of interspersing explanations from the guide, the same way the book does, because that's a that's mm-hmm. a very similar thing the book does. Is that it'll go, it'll have a chapter of exposition of like what's happening in the story, and then it will introduce at the end of a chapter, it'll like introduce a new idea and then the next little brief chapter will be an excerpt from the guide explaining that thing.
1: Yeah.
0: And the movie I think does a similar similarly good job of interspersing sections from the guide uh, explaining what's going on. And that's very similar experience to reading the book, which Mm -hmm. I, I think could be a tough thing to do, but I think the movie does it really well. So, uh the jeweled crabs that the vogons eat that's a thing from the book uh, oh. that is explicitly mentioned those little jeweled crabs that we see crushed several times sort of as a running gag in the movie uh those are from the vogsphere and they're uh, which none of the I will say this none of the vogons from what i remember in the book supposedly live on vogsphere anymore which is mm-hmm. kind of contradicts what happens in the movie a little bit um they basically just cuz they all leave vogsphere but they go back just to uh fish all the crabs out of it so they can eat them but (laughs) (laughs) i also think the Vogons are kind of adequately gross and giant and awful and disgusting Uh as they should be i the poetry reading scene is great uh it's kind of exactly how i imagined it with the way they're strapped to the thing and then he's he reads the exact poem from the book uh the lurgid Bee, and all that stuff (laughs) um the inside of the Heart of Gold, I wasn't a huge fan of the outside of the Heart of Gold design, but the inside is basically exactly what I imagined it mm-hmm. to look like, which is kind of like an 80s sci-fi, like the TARDIS from yeah. like yeah, the yeah, 80s yeah. or whatever, like which is like buttons everywhere, but kind of like sleek, like like the 80s, 70s, 80s idea of a sci-fi spaceship looks like on the inside, but kind of updated for a modern modern audience. Uh, Alan Merrickman crushes it. As always, <laughs> but specifically as Marvin the depressed robot, he does a wonderful job. Uh, he delivers the line, adi- the line, all the lines adequately depressed. I like that they included the little detail of the cheerful doors. That's a thing in the book that the <laughs> Marvin is the uh, the depressed robot who's part of the ship. Eddie is the super uh, cheerful computer, and then the doors and all the other parts of the ship have a sunny disposition to them, and they mm-hmm. like make cheerful sounds whenever they open and it drives Marvin crazy. (laughs) He hates them for it. Uh, I I mentioned earlier, but Tom Lennon plays Eddie, the computer and I love it. He's so over the top, cheerful and wonderful. Uh, They include a little joke that I found was really funny where uh, this, somebody asks says they're trying to find the, uh, the question to the answer Mm -hmm. and Marvin or, and Arthur says, somebody says, why? and they change who delivers it in the movie like zaphod does it in the movie arthur goes why and he goes why 42 c doesn't work i already tried that one <laughs> like wh- saying that why as the question doesn't make sense for the yeah. answer being 42 and it's a little throwaway that if you're not paying attention you don't even get the joke but it's it's from the book and i, I it made me laugh the petunias and the whale uh exactly like the the everything the whale says as it falls is word for word from the chapter where that happens that is exactly what happens they hit the button nothing happens they stay in the same place except the missiles turn into a bowl of petunias and a whale (laughs) and the whale falls and he literally says all the exact stuff this is a complete record of its thought from the moment it began its life till the moment it ended it ah what's happening it thought or excuse me who am i hello why am i here what's my purpose in life what do i mean by who am i Come down, get a grip now. Oh, this is an interesting sensation. What is it? It's sort of yawning, tingling sensation in my... My, well, I suppose I'd better start finding names for things if I want to make any headway in what for the sake of what I shall call an argument, I shall call the world, so let's call it my stomach. Good. Oh, it's getting quite strong. And hey, what about this whistling, roaring sound past, going past when I'm suddenly going to call my head? Perhaps I can call that wind. Is that a good name? I'll. It'll do. Perhaps I can find a better name for it later when I found out what it's for. It must be very important because there certainly seems to be a hell of a lot of it. <laughs> hey, what's this thing? This, let's call it a tail. Yeah, tail. Hey, I can really thrash it about pretty good, can't I? Wow. Wow, that feels great. Doesn't seem to achieve very much, but I'll probably find out what it's for later on. Now, have I built up any coherent picture of things yet? No? Never mind. Hey, this really is exciting. So much to find out about. So much to look forward to. I'm quite dizzy with anticipation. Or is it the wind? There really is a lot of that now, isn't there? And wow, hey, what's this thing suddenly coming toward me very fast? Very, very fast. So big and flat and round. It needs a big wide-sounding name like ow, ownd, round, ground. That's it. That's a good name. Ground. I wonder if it will be friends with me. And the rest, after a sudden wet thud, was silence. (laughs) I love that they, they, you know, as much as they do change, they do keep so much identical to how it plays out in the book that if you're a fan of the book, I can't see hating the movie. But apparently, people did. Slarty Bartfast introduction, uh, I thought was great. They keep in the line. uh, He says, "What's your name, Dent Arthur Dent? You'll be late, Dent Arthur Dent." I'll be late to what? And he goes, no, 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 it's a, it's a threat. You'll be the late Dent Arthur Dent. <laughs> uh, the reveal of the planet building factory, uh, the way they uh, fly through the little opening and then it opens into this giant expanse, I think captures, mm-hmm. because the line from the book is, uh, after they fly through the opening, Arthur turns around and looks at the wall and the wall defied the imagination, seduced it and defeated it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great line to kind of express, you know, the, the grandeur of the thing. Uh, They include the line about uh, how Arthur says and I mentioned this in a prequel that uh, he had the feeling that there's some big, horrible thing going on and nobody Mm -hmm. would ever tell him what it was. And and sorry, Bart fast says, no, that's just normal paranoia. Everybody has that. (laughs) Uh, It's great. And they do have a tease to the sequel that never got made um, where uh, Ford Prefect says, I know this great restaurant at the end of the universe, which that's the the sequel is the restaurant at the end of the universe. Mm -hmm. And they go and visit said restaurant. Um, which is a nice, it's a fun book, but uh, we didn't even get a sequel, so. And they put it in, the wormhole, in Arthur's words, causing a war, and then the aliens showing up, and because of a massive disregard for scale, end up getting eaten by a dog. <laughs> it's a fun little side aside that it's one chapter in the book that I was so excited when it showed up in the credits, because it's, it's delightful. That was it for The Movie Nailed It. I have one quick odd and end I want to talk about.
1: I have two things that I want to mention.
0: Okay, let's do it. So the one thing I wanted to mention is, and I don't know, I would have to interview Edgar Wright and maybe one day. That would be delightful. (laughs) But so one of the things Edgar Wright does in his films a lot, and if you watch any Edgar Wright movies, you'll notice this. And this is a thing from this book that I saw, and I was like, that's really interesting. And now I'm sure Edgar Wright wasn't the first person to do this. It's just how I most identify this filmmaking technique, because he does it a lot, and Mm -hmm. I love his movies. Is the quick cut with snap zooms of mundane events happening quickly. Mm-hmm. so in uh like sean of the dead or any of his movies he'll do things where like somebody will get to uh they'll get home from work and they'll hang up their keys on the door they'll take their coat off in the closet they'll turn the tea kettle on and they'll uh, get a bag of chips out of the cabinet and it'll all happen like bang 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 yeah. bang bang you know what i'm talking yeah. about if you've seen an egger wright movie you know exactly what yes. i'm talking about he does it a lot and in the very first chapter on the very first page of this book um, as we're introduced to Arthur Dent, he and I would actually have to look. This might be the exact sequence of events from one of the first Shaun of the Dead's because I know it. OK, I just want to talk. So uh, this is uh, eight, eight o'clock Thursday morning. Arthur didn't feel very good. Uh, toothpaste on the brush scrub, shaving near point at the ceiling. He adjusted it for a moment and reflected a second bulldozer through the bathroom window. Properly adjusted. It reflected Arthur Dent's bristles. He shaved them off, washed, dried and stomped off to the kitchen to find something pleasant to put in his mouth. And then the next sentence is just kettle, plug, fridge, milk, coffee, yawn. And then it goes on from there. Um, And I would have to look. That might be the exact sequence of events at the beginning of Shaun of the Dead. Because it (laughs) ends with him walking through the door yawning. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder if that's not maybe where Edgar Wright kind of got that idea of doing those little things very quickly, because mm-hmm. those one-word description is basically the the literary equivalent of the half-second yeah, shot cut, of. Yeah. And I was like, I saw that, and I was like, now I have to go watch Shaun of the Dead and see, because I know it <laughs> ends with him yawning. I know it does, because it happens at the beginning and the end of the movie. And I'm wondering, and if it isn't kettle plug, whatever the other things I said, anyways. Sorry, I thought that that like blew my mind when I saw that, and I was like, did I just figure out where Edgar Wright came up with that? Anyways, what are your what are your things before the
1: final? Okay, so Zoe De Chanel Is she ever a character other than a manic pixie no, dream girl? Always. Except for Elf, in which she plays opposite to a Manic Pixie Dream Elf. Yeah. But this movie. Was like, and I don't know if it translates. Like, if it is the same way in the book. Like, if she plays that kind of archetype. She's not. She because like, yeah. he beats her, yeah. and she's dressed as Charles Darwin, and she gets mad because he won't go to Madagascar with right. her. And have you ever heard anything right. more manic pixie dream girl? Because I have no, not.
0: It very much is. Uh, the movie plays on that a lot, and it's it's uh, one of the other sort of problems with it. But at the time it was less known as a problem this is 2004. Yeah. It was less uh of an obvious trope at the time and like sort of a problematic trope. I think um and she is like that kind of in the book to be fair. This book was written in 1980 whatever. Mm-hmm. Um it's just not to the same extent that we see it in the movie because she does not in the she doesn't get as much to do in the book and we yeah. don't learn eno- as much about her in the book as we do in the movie. But yeah. Yeah, she's definitely that character Mm.
1: yeah okay all right now my other thing um i don't know if this was in the book or not because i didn't ask about it but at the end of the movie uh slardy bart fast slardy bart fast -fast uh says that they're gonna go ahead and put the second earth that they built up um and he's he says to arthur he says like oh, we're just going to put it back the way it was unless you think there's anything we should like leave out or yeah. change or something. And he, and he's basically just like, uh, I'm going to leave. Yeah. If somebody asked me that, I'd be like, how much time do you have? Because I <laughs> One, have a lot of a thoughts. with a bullet.
0: Mosquitoes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have some suggestions. Yeah.
0: No, that's fair. Um, but that's, a, that's the point, though, is that Arthur doesn't, He's not worried about Earth anymore. He's moving on the bigger, better things. But
1: I mean, I guess. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I, yeah. You could have a yeah, a list of things that could be left off uh, this planet. <laughs> All right. It's time for the final verdict. Now, uh,
1: are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterwards.
0: I'm really split on this one. On one hand, the movie can never really capture the quote unquote quirkiness of this book. If you haven't read it, uh, at least the first one, it's very short. It's a quick read. Um, And the genius of the novel is all of the asides, all of the observations that are super succinct and yet ring so true about life, the universe and everything. The movie does its best to incorporate this. and It does it fairly well Um, with Stephen Fry as the narrator. It does a pretty good job of capturing the quirkiness, the clever biting satire, the the observations about the condition of life. Um, But it can just never kind of capture all the little details of the writing in the book. That being said, I think the movie is a more satisfying overall narrative. The book just kind of ends without Mm -hmm. much of a resolution. I know this is intentional. Our ventures continue in later books. Um, but we also don't get a lot of time with the characters in the book. Uh, it's very plot-driven. Uh, there, It's it, it's a little mixture of character and plot-driven, but it's very plot-driven. They're mm-hmm. just point A to point B. Go, 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 go. Uh, Arthur doesn't get the same kind of arc over the course of the book. Trillian doesn't get nearly as much room to breathe as she does in the movie. Again, the problematic elements of the trope of her character. Right. Fair, yeah, I, you know, I get that criticism, but she actually gets kind of more to do in the movie and, and, and room to breathe. We kind of just slam through the events and get a little tidbit of their personalities as things are happening to them during, in the book. The movie really pulls out the different elements of each character and kind of puts them on display. Uh, We get to see Arthur's inability to take risk. He leads a boring life. He misses out on opportunities because he's too scared to put himself out there. Trillian is brilliant and warm, but she has a lot of insecurities that kind of keep her from achieving happiness in her Mm -hmm. life. I think the book touches on these arcs a bit more over the course of the rest of the books. I can't assess that because I didn't read them. I have read them, but it's been a long time and I don't remember. Uh, But this movie wasn't sure if there would be a sequel. We now know that, unfortunately, there wasn't and won't be a sequel. And the movie wanted to make sure that it had a satisfying narrative arc, and I think it succeeds at that. Uh, Just comparing one movie to one book, I think I have to give it to the movie in this case, as much as I love this book. And I know this is probably sacrilege to Douglas Adams fans. I get it. I think the movie has more of an emotional heart that the first book lacks. The book is fun. It's clever. It's satirically biting and wildly inventive. But I think the movie captures most of that while giving us just a little bit more. Which is the heart. All
1: right. Potential controversy. Uh,
0: I think that might be a controversial opinion. um, (laughs) Potentially. And I didn't. It wasn't where I was thinking I was going to land until we finished watching the movie. And I thought about it for a while. But that's where I landed. So. All right. That is it for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Before we tell you what's coming up next time, you can do us the great favor of rating and reviewing us on anywhere you download our podcast. I don't think we're on Stitcher currently because there's yeah, an issue. I'm trying problems. to fix it. If you used to listen to us on Stitcher, hopefully, if I mean, obviously, if you're listening to this now, you found a new way to listen to us. If not, we're trying to get it fixed with Stitcher. It's an issue with our podcast client and why it's not updating on Stitcher. I, I'm working on it. But any other, uh, if you can rate us and review us on any of the other uh, platforms that you use and listen to us on, you can even rate and review us on Facebook if you want. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Facebook, you can follow us on all of the social media: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Goodreads, and we have a subreddit. And that's it. So, Katie, what's up next?
1: All right, coming up next, we are going to do something different than what we've been doing. We've been doing a lot of fantasy. Type properties Yes Um Coming up next We are going to read and watch Crazy Rich Asians
0: Oh I didn't I don't know if I knew that
1: Because I've been I've been wanting to watch it Because I yeah. heard the movie was really good Um So I'm interested to see How it compares to the book And it's not Like a genre that I normally Yeah Read
0: What genre is it considered?
1: Um It's kind of like a Like a rom-com right. Um I don't want to say, tra- say trashy-lit, because right. I don't like that term, yeah. but it's kind of in that yeah. oeuvre. Gotcha. Okay.
0: Interesting. I Yeah. It's always a fun surprise when I forget to look at the list, <laughs> or the, the schedule, and I get it like, oh, that's what we're doing next. Cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that will be in two weeks. Uh, in the meantime, we'll have a prequel next week. Uh, we also may talk about uh, Infinity War. Not Infinity War. Endgame on that one, because we're mm-hmm. going to see that tomorrow night, and so I'm sure we'll have thoughts. But uh, yeah. anyways. Yeah. Keep that in mind. We might talk about Endgame on the prequel next week. So, until next time, guys, gals, non-binary, and everybody else, keep reading books, keep watching movies,
1: and And keep keep being awesome. awesome.